All right, well, we're going to get started. Officially, let me welcome you to our virtual Sunday School from Calvary Community Church. Thank you for joining us. If you're joining us via calvaryem.org, that's wonderful. But you can take advantage of the live chat on our YouTube page. You see the address on your screen, youtube.com slash c slash calvaryem.org slash live. That way you can interact with me in the live chat. Well, what are we looking at today? Well, today we are moving on from the book of Joshua, and we're beginning our time in the book of Judges. Now, Judges is a book with a very different feel from the book of Joshua. In Joshua, as we've been seeing the last number of weeks, the constant theme is victory in God. We see Israel trust and obey God, and God makes Israel into an unstoppable conquering force. And Israel obtains from God the land that was promised to Israel by God via God's covenant with Abraham. Now, wouldn't we all like to experience the kind of blessing that the people of Joshua's generation experienced when they were faithful to God, and as they experienced the faithfulness of God? But in the book of Judges, by contrast, the great theme is not victory in God, but sinful compromise. Yes, there will be victory in God. We're going to see amazing deliverances in Judges. But the great theme is actually sinful compromise. Because as a whole, Israel turns from God to serve idols in the book of Judges. And as a result, Israel no longer experiences the blessing of God, but instead experiences defeat, deprivation, and subjugation by foreign kingdoms. And I think we also know, if we've lived any amount of time in Christ, we also know what it's like to experience the painful consequences of sin, both before becoming a Christian and even after becoming a Christian. We know what it's like to experience the consequences of sin, even the pain and the suffering that goes along with serving something else rather than the true God, serving something else above the true God. Now, in our first lesson in the book of Judges, we're going to hear about what took place soon after the death of Joshua. And then we're going to overview what is God's response to Israel's sin over the next three and a half centuries, the Judges period. Why did Israel turn from God? How does God's response to Israel, in light of their apostasy, emphasize both his holiness and his love? And what are we to learn regarding our own serious battles with idolatry today? Because let's face it, idolatry is not something that people in the ancient times only struggled with, with actual statues of stone or bronze or gold, but something that we continue to deal with even in our hearts. Now, the history presented in the book of Judges is not pretty, but this is the divine record, the perfect word of God, and is so important for us. We need to pay attention to it so that we can live wisely and righteously today and cling ever more tightly to our saving God. And the only Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's ask God's blessing on this time of study now. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. God, we need you to open our eyes to the wonderful things of your word, even the things that are, in a sense, difficult to read. We're going to see terrible sin even in the passages that we look at today. And yet God has instructed to us that we, we are not deceived ourselves into treating idols lightly and treating sin lightly. God, help me to be able to explain this word accurately and helpfully. And I pray, God, you'd 
you would work in the hearts of the listeners by your spirit to encourage, to convict, to sober, to change, God. Pray that you would do this for your own glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and open to the book of Judges. Book of Judges, chapter 1. This account, this book of Judges, written by an unknown prophet. Don't know for sure who wrote it, possibly Samuel, that's the Jewish tradition. Written during the early years of King Saul's reign, most likely. Book of Judges begins where Joshua leaves off, and it records some of the same final events that Joshua also records. Book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua, though earlier sections in Joshua do mention some conquests that took place at the end of Joshua's life, or even after Joshua's life, such as the conquest of Hebron by Caleb. We see some of those same conquest events mentioned in the opening of Judges chapter 1. We'll get to the next slide in just a second. We're not going to read through chapter 1 together, but I do want to note some details with you before we get to Judges chapter 2, which we're going to look at together. Do remember what I said about the conquest last week, in that the conquest was complete in one sense. Israel had broken the backbone of resistance in Canaan. There was no longer a threat, or a credible threat to Israel's living in the land. No nation was going to come by and just destroy them or, or force them to flee. The, um, the invasion had accomplished destruction, a substantial destruction of Israel's enemies. Yet there was territory assigned to Israel by God that was not yet acquired. And these were going to be acquired over time as the tribes continued the conquest after the days of Joshua when Israel grew. And also a quick side note, just a, a clarification. In one sense, Abraham's promise of the land, this part of the Abrahamic covenant, was fulfilled by Joshua and by the people of Israel in Joshua's day. They obtained the land just as God promised Abraham. And yet the borders were not those promised even in the Abrahamic covenant. One day, we will see those borders uh, actually accomplished when Messiah returns. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in Israel, we will see the full extent of the promise given to Abraham. But even in the days of Joshua, there was fulfillment fundamentally of the promise that Israel would receive a land. And of course, many other prophecies in the scripture will, say, will clarify, Israel will again receive the land under Messiah when they repent one day. And that was, side note, that was free. But let's, let's come back to what I was just saying. Remember, though, that the conquest, in one sense, is not finished. It needs to continue. There are still enemies, there are still pagans, there are still Canaanites living in the land that, that need to be destroyed or removed as Israel continues the conquest. Now, in chapter 1 of Judges, we begin to hear about some of the conquest that takes place after the days of Joshua. And verse 1 tells us this is after Joshua. Because it says Joshua died. It came about after the death of Joshua. So chapter 1 is probably talking about the in-between generation of those who were still alive to see many of the great wonders of God during the conquest and even before in the wilderness. But Joshua himself has died. So it's the, it's the elders, it's the people who outlived Joshua, but were still kind of part of that faithful generation. And we're hearing about what they do in chapter 1 of Judges. And at first, the post-Joshua conquest report sounds pretty good. If you just glance with me at verses 1 to 21 in Judges chapter 1, we hear that Judah 
Simeon, and Benjamin, they've all conquered many new cities. They have continued the conquest, though there are some cities that they're not able to conquer. And that's a little bit concerning. Then there's a slightly less rosy report in verses 22 to 29. We hear that Manasseh and Ephraim, they have conquered a few cities, but they have left most of their enemies, most of the enemies around them, unconquered. Why is that? And then when we get to verses 30 to 36 of chapter 1, we get an even more concerning report, because we hear Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan have not conquered anything. They've left all their enemies around them. Dan's performance in verse 34 is particularly sad. We're going to hear later in the book of Judges, actually, Dan will just give up on trying to obtain the divinely allotted territory for them, and they just migrate to another part of Palestine. They decide to go north and establish their tribal inheritance there, which is against what God said. He said, no, your place is over here. Go ahead and conquer it. But they said, it's too hard. It's too hard. And so they go up north where they can settle in a place that's a little easier. So these conquest reports we hear about chapter 1, they start off well, but they get increasingly concerning. And then there's something else. If we look at verses 27 to 36, there's another detail that should get our attention. As you just glance, you may notice, what do the tribes of Israel do with the inhabitants of the land instead of destroying them? It says that they subjected them to forced labor. When they grew strong, they subjected these Canaanites to forced labor. Now, this doesn't seem like that bad of an idea from a human perspective. I mean, why get rid of people... Uh, why get rid of the Canaanites when the fighting is going to be so difficult? Why why uh, work so hard to do that when it's just going to be unpleasant? Why not just subjugate them and then we'll benefit from their labor? be a lot easier and we'll get a nice outcome, right? But is this what God commanded? Did God command Israel to make treaties with their neighbors, establishing subjugation? Now let's look at Joshua chapter or Judges chapter 2. Judges 2, where we're actually going to read our text together, verses 1 to 15. We'll do the whole chapter today, but we'll start with just verses 1 to 15. Because the angel of Yahweh is going to make a visit to Israel and address the situation. Look at Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, and follow along with me as I read. The word of God says, Now the angel of the Lord, that is the angel of Yahweh, covenant name there, came up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bakim, and there they sacrificed to Yahweh. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of Yahweh which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. 
all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of Yahweh burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of Yahweh was against them for evil or trouble. As Yahweh had spoken and as Yahweh had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. As always, we want to use our inductive Bible study method for analyzing any passage of Scripture. And that method is just three steps. Observe, interpret, and apply. And so let's do that with this passage. We'll start with just simple observations. Notice who it is that speaks to Israel in verses 1 to 3. It's the angel of Yahweh. And notice how this angel speaks. It doesn't say, thus says Yahweh, or thus says God, but rather he uses the first person. Notice what the angel of Yahweh says to Israel. He reminds Israel that he was the one who brought them out of Egypt and made a covenant with them. He also reminds Israel that at that time he charged the people not to make any agreement with the people of the land to leave them alive. He tells Israel they have not obeyed that charge. They've broken covenant. And he warns Israel of the consequence. Israel will now not be able to drive out the people of the land because the angel of Yahweh will not give Israel victory. Instead, the surviving people will become a thorn in Israel's side, like a splinter in the finger, a source of continual trouble and pain, and the gods of the people around them will ensnare Israel. And notice how the people of Israel respond in verses 4 and 5. It says they weep, they cry out, they offer sacrifice to God, but notice what they don't do. They don't change the situation. Now verse 6 might be a little jarring to you at first, because verse 6 appears to go back in time for a moment to before the death of Joshua. And this is in order to give a more sweeping description of Israel's changing spiritual state over uh, the decades that follow. We see this description in verses or we see a description in verses 6 to 9 about how long Israel continues to worship and generally obey God. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And this is the same report we heard at the, at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua. People continue to follow Yahweh all the days of Joshua and then of the elders who outlived Joshua. But then notice the new information in verses 10 to 12. It says, after those, after those people died, After that faithful generation, a new generation arose that did not know Yahweh or his mighty works. What? Don't know Yahweh? Don't know what he did? As a people, then, as a whole, this new generation turns away from God to do evil and to worship the gods of the land's inhabitants, the gods of the Canaanites. They bow down to these gods, we hear, and they serve them. 
And just one generation, Yahweh's people become idol worshippers, just like their neighbors. Now this is amazing. Terrible, but amazing. Now who or what exactly were the people of Israel turning to in worship? What were these gods of the land? Well, let me give you a little bit more background information. You actually see a picture of an idol actually from the land of Canaan. An idol of one of the gods that's being talked about here. But as I give you this background information, let me first give you a little bit of a qualifier. Talking about ancient deities is difficult because, first of all, information is limited. We don't know everything we could know or we would like to know about the past. But also, mythologies, ancient religious systems were very contradictory and always changing. For instance, the religion of Canaan or the religion of Egypt or any of those places around there, it often happens that one god turns into another god over time. They actually change. Or a new god is added to the pantheon due to the influence of neighbors. Or a god and a goddess who are once brother and sister, they become a married couple. Or one goddess is simultaneously the mother and the daughter of another god. How can that be? Well, they didn't worry about it. It gets pretty confusing. And unsurprisingly, there's still a lot of dispute today as to who these deities were that the people of Canaan and then Israel were worshipping. But we can say some things. Notice our text mentions the Baals and the Ashtaroth in verse 13. Now, these are plural terms. These stand for all the gods and goddesses of the land and the local versions of two particular deities, Baal and Ashtoreth. So, Baals, Ashtaroth, those are just the plural versions of these two names, Baal and Ashtoreth. So, who's Baal? Well, Baal, the name Baal actually is the word Lord. It's one of the words Lord in Hebrew. We're familiar maybe with another term for Lord, Adonai, which is often used of God. There's another word for Lord, and that's Baal. And many deities at the time, were they had Baal as part of their title. Uh, It's actually even used in a few places in the scriptures to describe the true God. He is referred to as the Lord, even Baal. But uh, over time, God says, I don't want you to use that term for me anymore, just because of how it's associated with the other gods. When referring to these false gods, or to the false god Baal, the Bible is usually referring to, if it's singular, referring to the chief god of the Canaanites, probably Baal Shemaim or Baal Hadu, or we could just say Baal for short. There are many versions of this Baal. Each place in Canaan, each city, each city-state probably had its own flavor of this male chief god, Baal. The Phoenicians, their version of this god, by the way, Phoenicia would be in the land north of Israel, Tyre and Sidon on the coast. That would be the section of Phoenicia. The Phoenician version of Baal saw him as a sun god, while the more ancient Semitic version of Baal, what would be more characteristic of Canaan, saw Baal as the storm god, similar to Marduk from Babylon or Zeus from Greece. But either way, Phoenicia, Canaan, elsewhere, Baal was associated fundamentally with fertility. And this makes sense, because if he's responsible for the sun or the rain and the dew, all of these things are necessary for life. And so he was celebrated as chief of the gods. Now, Canaan was a land particularly dependent on the right amount of sun and the right amount of rainfall for its prosperity. You may even remember, when God brings up the people from Egypt, he says, the land you're going to It's different from Egypt. Egypt was a place where the Nile just flowed and everything was watered regularly. But when you go to the land I'm bringing you, it's a good land, but it drinks in the rain. 
It drinks in the rain and dew. That's how life flourishes in Canaan. It needs consistent rainfall. And who's going to be in control of that rainfall? God says, I will. So continue to follow me. Now for the people of the land who didn't know Yahweh, they looked to the God who was responsible for rainfall, which would be Baal. He was very important and popular then with the people. Baal is usually depicted as a man or a bull. The idol that I have pictured on the screen is of Baal. And a man or a bull were often associated with virility and fertility, which is what Baal was supposed to be all about. So we have Baal, but his counterpart, the chief goddess in Canaan, would be Ashtoreth, also known as Astarte or Ishtar. Ashtoreth, she was the goddess of love, of sex, of fertility, and of war. So think of uh, some, something a little bit similar to Venus or Aphrodite from the Greco-Roman pantheon. Now some versions of Ashtoreth have her associated with the moon, others have her associated with the, mean, the morning or evening star, which we call Venus. She was usually depicted as a nude woman, and many such idols have been excavated in Palestine. She indeed was a popular goddess. So we have Baal, we have Ashtoreth, and then we have Asherah. This is another name that we see throughout the Old Testament, even in Israel. What's the relationship between Ashtoreth and Asherah? Are they the same? Well, that question is a little bit debated, actually. Some say Asherah was a, a separate goddess, uh, the, the ancient mother goddess in the Canaanite pantheon. The creator god, according to the Canaanites, was El, and his consort was Asherah, and all the other gods and goddesses came from them. They were born from them. As such, Asherah, if she is indeed the mother goddess, she was associated with fertility and trees. Now, that's one view. But again, it's a little bit unclear. So, other scholars say that Asherah is just a term for the cultic object of Ashereth. We hear about Asherah, or Asherah poles, at various times in the Old Testament. Don't know what they were, exactly, or indeed if they were actually poles. They appeared to be. Our best guess as to what an Asherah was, was a, a wooden tree-like figure in the shape of a woman. And it was somehow being used as an object of worship. Now, the reason we don't know too much about Asherah is that none of these objects have survived. They were made out of wood, so they deteriorated over time. Archaeologists are able to discover where wooden cultic objects actually stood. They can detect from the remains, but none of the, act the actual Asherah have survived. So was it just an object for worshipping Ashtoreth, or was it a separate deity? Not entirely sure. It's possible that, and I guess this is kind of like a third, a third possibility, it's possible that Asherah and Ashtoreth were originally two separate deities that became one. Or were originally one deity that became two separate ones. This happens all the time in ancient mythology, so perhaps it happened here. So in terms of the main deities that Israel is dealing with, the Canaanites are worshipping, we've got Baal, we've got Ashtoreth, we've got Asherah, and another one worth mentioning is Molech. This is the deity that's most most often associated with one terribly barbaric practice, and that is child sacrifice. It's actually unclear whether Molech actually was the name of the god originally, or Molech was a reference to a particular kind of offering, namely child sacrifice, that over time became its own god. Instead of offering a child sacrifice to a particular god, you just you offered it to the god of child sacrifice, who was Molech. The name Molech comes from the word meaning king, may be related to Milcom, the principal god of the Ammonites, who are Israel's, one of Israel's neighbors on the east. 
Moloch was not the only god, though, who permitted or demanded child sacrifice, but he's the one usually associated with it in the Bible. Now, there were other gods and various versions of these gods in Canaan, but these are the chief ones that are going to appear again and again in the Old Testament. And these are the ones that apparently, according to the book of Judges chapter 2, Israel is turning to instead of the true God. Now, how does God respond to this blatant covenant treachery, this turning from God to serve idols? Well, according to verses 14 to 15, God responds to this rebellious generation with faithfulness. But that is faithfulness to curse and oppose them just as he promised he would in his recorded covenant. He said this back in the books of Moses. He says, if you turn from me, then I'm going to turn from you. I'm going to oppose you. I'm going to be set against you. We hear in our passage that the anger of Yahweh burns against Israel, and he brings the specific judgment of military oppression, military conquest against them. Again, he said this in the Torah. This is exactly what he would do. And notice how directly opposite Israel's experience as they turn from God is compared to what they experienced under Joshua. With Joshua, the people followed Yahweh, and they experienced victory. No one could successfully stand against Israel. But now that the people have forsaken Yahweh, they experience defeat. Israel can no longer successfully stand against its enemies. Before, no one could stand against them. Now they can't stand against anybody. Before, the hand of Yahweh was with the people. But now the hand of Yahweh is against the people. So, this is our passage. We've made simple observations on it. But now we want to go to the second step of Bible study, and that is interpretation. How can we bring together the details of what we have observed to answer questions of interpretation? And that's what we're going to do now. So first, who is the angel of Yahweh? Mentioned in the beginning of our passage. Maybe you're tired of this question now, but it's always one that that comes up as of interpretation in Old Testament passages. But the answer is almost always the same. And it's clear from this passage. The angel of Yahweh is God himself. Look, he's speaking in the first person. He's saying, I did these things. Well, those are the things that the Torah says God did. It's because the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. He's the same and yet separate from Yahweh. In other words, this is God the Son interacting with his people in his pre-incarnate state. Remember, the Son of God was very active in the Old Testament and was uh, loving and judging even Israel. And we see that here. Now another question, and this is one I would like you to think about and, and answer in the chat if you're able to. The previous mostly faithful generation of Joshua and the elders with him, they probably never foresaw that such rebellion, such apostasy, complete apostasy would happen in Israel. And just within one generation. So how did this happen? They probably never expected it. How did it happen? What do you think? Certainly get some clues from our passage. And this is a question that can have a number of different answers, but how did this apostasy happen so quickly? And Mark notes, it's due to their lack of obedience in vanquishing their enemies. And I do think that is a huge component. What else?
again, we could note a number of different parts to the answer, but I think we can summarize the large part. Well, actually, there's another answer here. Because there were remnants of the original inhabitants in the land, and they were able to entice the new generation that had, that had not witnessed God's power and miracles. And Craig mentions parents not training their children. I think this is all part of it. Really, we could summarize, I think, the, the large portion of the answer, and Leroy mentions the generation being disconnected from Yahweh, and again, that's true. A large part, even the primary part of the answer, is that small compromises that were not dealt with properly in the first generation, they became big compromises in the ensuing generation. It was small compromises made in the beginning that led to greater compromises later. And there were hints of this. There were hints of this even in the book of Joshua itself. We didn't look at all these specifically, but in the section of Joshua that talks about the different tribal allotments given to the um, given to the various tribes, there were notes there about how it, the Israelites failed to remove certain inhabitants of the land. Even in Joshua, there were people that they weren't able to conquer, and it was due to their own lack of faith. And the end of Joshua, when Joshua is exhorting the people, part of his exhortation is, put away the false gods from among you. Why does Joshua need to say that? seems like it's because it already was becoming a problem even in his day. And then here at the beginning of Judges, just as some of you noted, the people fail to continue the conquest. They leave the Canaanites around, either as neighbors or as subjects. And what does the failure of conquest lead to? It leads to intermarriage, just as God said it would. And what does intermarriage lead to? It leads to the ensnarement of the people's gods in Israel. It leads to idolatry. And what does idolatry lead to? It leads to God's judgment. It's exactly what God said would happen. So he says, you must take care not to make any treaties with the people of the land. Destroy them, remove them. But when Israel compromised in that area, it just led to further and further compromises. I see some other comments here. Roy says this demonstrates the impact of foreign nations and their gods on Israel. And Israel confusing God's common grace on pagans with the actual workings of those pagan gods. And uh, Juwan says, also referring to parents, and uh, Ken says this has to do with uh, being man-focused. And again, I think those things are true. Let me say also, on, in regards to the whole parenting issue, I do think that part of this small compromise leading to bigger compromises, does have something to do with the failure of the first generation to teach their children about Yahweh. After all, this is something that Moses emphasized many times in the Torah. He exhorted the people to make sure that they taught the next generation about Yahweh and Yahweh's works. Yet our text says that this new generation didn't know Yahweh and didn't know about Yahweh's works. So how could that be if the parents were faithfully instructing their children? And what about all the monuments that are being hoisted up in the book of Joshua to help the new generation remember the conquest and remember the mighty works and the greatness of God? Now, we don't get a full explanation as to what exactly happened, how this there was such a failure for the new generation to know about Yahweh. But it seems that there was some level of compromise, some level of laxness in the first generation to pass on 
the word of truth about Yahweh and about what Yahweh did. I mean, maybe the parents, they followed Yahweh, but they just didn't make godly discipline and instruction of their children a priority. And of course, this is something that parents today, Christian parents today, are tempted by. Don't make it a priority. Even if you follow God, somehow it just doesn't end up being passed on to your children, not living it out, not teaching them. Obviously, this parent, this parenting problem would be compounded by intermarriage with the Canaanites. Because if one spouse is idolatrous, actively influencing the children away from Yahweh, it's going to dampen the other spouse's enthusiasm for God. And when, those, when light and darkness are sharing together, it's so easy for the children not to be raised according to Yahweh. And surely this was happening in Israel too. Yeah, we're just seeing... The principle, as as Liz mentions, the, the principle about leaven. And uh, let me just read what Mark says here. Being drawn to the other nations is a, is a temptation even in our day. Association. Uh, just thinking now of the book of Proverbs. The people you choose to be your companions, they're going to have an influence on you over time. And we see this even with Israel. So, I think a lot of these things can be summarized by just the simple principle that small compromises, they lead to bigger ones and more serious ones over time. And isn't this exactly what we see in Christian history? If you were part of our church history class a number of years ago, you might, be, you might remember that when Christians compromise certain doctrines or biblical standards in one generation, the next generation of Christians, it tends to do the same, but even more. Even abandoning the faith. This is true, for instance, when it comes to beliefs about the Bible. Whether the Bible can be trusted to be accurate, clear, complete, sufficient. Christians can compromise the Bible in small ways when they say things like, oh, the Bible contains God's truth, rather than is God's truth. Or, modern science is necessary to help us interpret the Bible. Or, God still gives special revelation in addition to what the Bible says. There are prophecies also to be listened to. These may not seem like serious compromises, and otherwise faithful believers, true followers of God, can say and believe these things and still actually follow God. But taking such such stances, it opens the door to serious future apostasy. The flesh and the evil one are happy to take advantage, and history is replete of instances where compromising on the scriptures themselves, it leads the next generation to go even further. And really, this is exactly what has happened with almost every seminary that has ever existed. You know, in one of my classes, I had to write an essay about what causes good seminaries to go bad. And historically, that's almost always the case. Why is it? Same principle. Small compromises lead to bigger compromises over time. And specifically for seminaries, it's when Christian seminaries look for greater influence and academic prestige that they begin to make small compromises. They introduce, in particular, they introduce teachers at their school who have ideas that are contrary to sound doctrine. And over time, the school goes theologically liberal. It happens again and again and again. But this isn't just true in a macro sense in Christian history. It's also true in a micro sense in a personal sense, when it comes to sanctification. When sin is not dealt with in our own lives, even little sins, when it's not dealt with properly through repentance and mortification, 
what happens? It leads to other sins. Even domination by particular sins that leads to ruin. A seemingly small compromise like dating a non-believer. I'm not going to marry the non-believer. I know the Bible says I'm, I'm supposed to only marry those in the Lord. But it's nothing wrong with dating a non-believer. Or watching TV and movies with nudity or strong sexuality. Or making no regular effort at Bible reading or prayer. These seemingly small compromises, they lead to other compromises and greater compromises over time. You're feeding the flesh. And there's another question I want to ask related to our passage. It has to do with what I'm talking about just now. Why doesn't Israel change? Why don't they restart the conquest? Why don't they get back to driving out the people of the land once God confronts Israel? via the angel of the angel of the Lord in the first part of our passage. Why don't they change? Now again, the passage doesn't tell us specifically, but the answer has to be they either won't or they can't. Now think about it. God specifically condemns Israel for making covenants with the people of the land, which means Israel must have sworn treaties with these people. They've entered into contractual agreements with the Canaanites and now keeping their word demands that they leave the Canaanites alive. This is the situation that happened with the Gibeonites, right? Israelites feel like they can't go back on what they swore. And in a sense, they couldn't. And over time, as the holy society and the pagan society intermingle, it becomes increasingly difficult to separate them costly to separate them. I mean, if you're an Israelite, how can you destroy the people of the land when your own sons and daughters are married to them and your grandchildren are of mixed heritage? Are you going to destroy your own grandkids? It becomes too late for Israel to go back and do what they should have done at first. And there is a relevant principle for us there too, isn't it? God warns us about making foolish and sinful choices in the Bible. But sometimes we're tempted to discount the danger and say, I'll be fine. I'll be able to resist when the time comes. If things get bad, I can always just remove myself from the situation. I can repent. But that's not how sin works. That's not how idolatry works. When we don't obey God's initial command to walk wisely or to stay away from sin, to guard ourselves, When we don't obey that initial command, we've already gained momentum towards an ensnaring fall. Make no mistake, sin has consequences that can never be reversed. Yes, there's healing, there's redemption in the Lord, praise God for that. But sin has some consequences that can never be reversed. And mark this, once you establish a sinful habit, it becomes very difficult and painful to break that habit. Why? Because you've trained yourself in unrighteousness. It's become your habit. You have fed and empowered your flesh. And now your flesh loudly calls for you to continue. And others involved with you in the sin, they similarly egg you on, pull you along. It's not as simple as, oh, if I get entangled by sin, I'll just repent later. You might not be able to. Or it will be extremely costly for you to do so. It's like Pastor Bobby says sometimes. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will make you stay longer than you want to stay and make you pay more than you want to pay. It doesn't tell you that at first. 
seems so innocent, seems so non-dangerous. But once you're in it, and you see how it's really hooked its claws into you. Yeah, Mark says, this is just the sowing and re- reaping principle, yeah, even emphasized in Galatians 6, 7, 8. And this is the temptation to think that we can sow and not reap. Believe me, brothers and sisters, we are tempted to think that all the time. We're thinking that we won't experience the consequences of our sin. But there's that principle. God says, what you sow is what you're going to reap. Now, thanks be to Christ, there is still hope in such situations. Even if you've gotten really entrenched in sin, you've trained yourself in it, it's become such a habit, there is still hope if you are willing to take radical action. If you're willing to repent and accept the cost of saying goodbye to your sin, doing whatever it takes to be rid of it and follow the Lord instead. God's forgiving grace is great enough and God's transforming grace is great enough by the power of His Spirit. You are never doomed as a captive in your sin. But you would be wise. You would spare yourself much pain if you just guarded yourself from the sin in the first place. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn from Israel's tragic disobedience. Let us beware of small compromises. And where we see them, immediately go all out to uproot those compromises. Uproot the sinful thinking, the unbelieving thinking, the sinful habits, before they establish themselves more in your lives and in the church. We need to take seriously the biblical command to flee idolatry. And we're not just talking about statues. We're talking about idols of the heart. The belief that anything is necessary or more pleasurable than God. You need to flee that. Unmask it for the falsehood that it is. Understand it for the enslaving deception that it is. Run away from it and run after Christ. You need to believe the Lord. Don't believe your flesh. All the idols, the things that look so attractive, they will perish, as will the rest of the world. But God lasts forever. His word proves true. And he brings blessing to those who follow him. You want to cut off whatever causes you to stumble before it's too late. Don't say to yourself, ah, I'll just... I can repent later. It'll be a lot harder later. And maybe you won't be willing. The stakes are high. Because if we're not willing to do this, if we're not willing to radically follow the Lord in sanctification, what will happen? What will God do? At least my next question. Even though God's people turn against him, I know many, we know from many instances in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that Yahweh's nature is patient, loving, it's full of compassion. So why does God react in such angry judgment against his own people? Why would a loving God do that? Well, it's not the answer because God is also holy. He never stops being loving, but his holiness is also part of his love. His goodness demands that evil be judged. And among his people, evil must be chastened and disciplined out. Evil cannot characterize God's people, or else it would defame God. This is what the author of 1 John says, the Apostle John. He says, if we claim to know the God of light and walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. Because the God of light, he will not have fellowship with the people of darkness. 
And God is trustworthy. If He says, if you turn, I'm going to discipline you. If you turn, I'm going to curse you. He will be faithful to that. And that's exactly what we see with Israel. If we're not willing to do the hard work of sanctification, if we're not willing to radically deal with our sin and our idols, then we will be opposed by God. And do you want the God of the universe, the God who is mighty, to be your enemy? To be the one chastening you? Now someone might ask, well, just how bad was Israel? How bad were the people of the land that imitating them brought such judgment from God? Well, we've dealt with this question a few times already. We actually hear the answer from the Torah itself, though indirectly, from the first five books of the Bible. Because when God gives his law to Israel, he's constantly making reference to the people of Egypt and the people of Canaan and what they do. And he says, Israel, you must not be like them. For example, in Leviticus 20, Leviticus 20 verses 22 to 24, right after God has given a list of various abominable practices practiced by the Canaanites, this is what God says. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things. And therefore, I have abhorred them. What were the people of the land doing? Doing all the things that God commanded Israel not to do. The people of the land were full of strange and despicable practices. Drunken revelries and carousing, murder, rape, bribes, perverted justice, thefts, incest, demonic sorcery, bestiality, cult prostitution, cursing of parents, lying, adultery, homosexuality, cutting oneself for the dead, boiling baby goats in their mother's milk, and burning babies and children as sacrifices to the gods. You could see how abhorrent it would be for Israel to become like the people of the land, to serve their gods, and then consequently to adopt the practices of the people. Of course this would bring God's chastening judgment. And if we find ourselves at all resembling disobedient Israel or the godless people of Canaan, we're going to be chastened too, even judged by God. So what are we to do? We are to repent. We are to repent before it is too late. God in his goodness is faithful to judge. But he offers mercy. He offers mercy in Christ if we will turn from our sin and trust in the only God and Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God have mercy on our nation, which actually resembles pagan Canaan and paganized Israel in many ways. There's a really interesting article I don't have time to share with you from the Association of Biblical Research. That's a Christian archaeological organization. This article notes all the parallels between ancient child sacrifice and modern abortion. They were really pursued for the exact same reasons. Our nation, our world, is not that different from the ancient pagan world. It just looks a little more sophisticated. Now, I know that there's always some talk in national calamities like the coronavirus as to whether this is a judgment from God on the nation or on the world for its sin. And we never can say specifically what God is doing in calamities. God's, God's purposes are mysterious, multifaceted. We do know that he judges sin, but is he judging sin in a particular instance? One thing we do know, certainly our nation deserves to be judged for its many, many sins 
including abortion, sexual immorality, materialism, countless forms of idolatry, false religion, self-exaltation, and then, worst of all, the celebration and the exportation of all these sins to the peoples around the world. Our nation commits sin, celebrates it, and encourages others to do so. Yet, even in calamity, even in something like the coronavirus, as hard as it is, we have to admit, God is not treating America like America deserves. We deserve far worse than this. And individually, when we are chastened by God, or experience the consequences of sin, or even the judgment of God, in this life, we have not really received what our sins deserve. Because the Bible is clear what our sins deserve. Our sins deserve the overwhelming wrath of God, which is our utterly our utter earthly destruction and our eternal torment. That's what sin deserves. It is so heinous against the one true God who is good. But that's not what we receive. We're still alive. We still experience good. Why? Why does God show us such grace? Why does he limit his wrath even as he chastens us? Why does he do us good even in spite of our sins? What's the answer? It's because God is so abundantly loving. He's so merciful. He's so patient. Yes, God will be faithful to judge sin. All sin will have a recompense, either at the cross of Christ or in eternal fire, eternal punishment. Yet God constantly demonstrates undeserved love and patience to us, to his people, and to the world. And he was doing the same thing with Israel. And this is what I want to show you next. Look at the rest of Judges chapter 2. Look at verses 16 to 22. We see the rest of God's response to covenant treachery in Israel. Yes, Josh, or Judges 2, 14 to 15, God's anger was being poured out on Israel. But let's read on, starting in verse 16. It says, Then Yahweh raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of Yahweh. They did not do as their fathers. When Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about, when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will keep the way of Yahweh to walk in their fathers and walk in it as their fathers did or not. So Yahweh allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And we could say much about this second passage, but for the sake of time, we just need to make a few opportunities. What else did God do? Or a few observations, I mean. What else did God do besides chasten the people? He delivered them. 
When their cry came to him because of their oppressors, God was moved to pity the descendants of Abraham. And he raised up judges. as a term designating a part military, part judicial savior leader in Israel. God raised up these judges to save Israel, to deliver them from the very chastening that God had sent to them because of their sins. This was a generous grace from the Lord to send Israel saviors, to bring them out of bondage and back to God. But how did Israel respond to these judged deliverers? They followed the judge, they followed God during the days the judge was alive, but as soon as he died, they again forsook Yahweh. And they didn't just return to their old practices. What does the text say in verse 19? They acted more corruptly than their fathers did. They were even worse than before God first sent the judgment. Really what's being described in verses 16 to 23 of Judges 2 is the outline for the rest of the book of Judges. There's going to be a cycle as we move through this book. It really, it's a downward spiral. It describes Israel's relationship with God during the Judges period, over the next 350 years or so. It follows a normal sequence of steps. I break it down into four. Others do it a few, few more. It depends on how detailed you want to be. But first... Israel forsakes Yahweh, chooses sin and idols. Second, Yahweh sends a nation to oppress Israel, to discipline Israel. Third, the people repent and they cry out to God for deliverance. And fourth, Yahweh raises up a a judge to deliver and lead Israel for a time. As soon as the judge dies, back to step one. Except even worse than before. This is going to happen again and again in the judges. And Israel will get worse and worse over time. The people's sin will get worse. The oppression that God sends as a result will get harder and longer. And then the judges themselves, as we move through the book of Judges, they get worse and worse over time. I mean, our first judge, Othniel, he's a very upstanding man. But by the time we get to Samson, oh, these judges are really imperfect. But again and again, what is God doing? He's showing undeserved compassion. He's showing mercy to unfaithful Israel to deliver them, to draw them back to himself. And maybe this time, maybe Israel will learn. Maybe Israel will change. Maybe Israel will fundamentally follow God. This is God being who He is. The true God, the faithful God, He is one who does not treat us as our sins deserve. He has patience with us for a long time. He showed undeserved kindness to Israel, and He shows undeserved kindness to us. So what should this lead us to do? What should the kindness of God lead us to do? Should it cause us to continue in sin so we can repent later? Oh, God's a forgiving God. By no means. Because if we think that way, we probably won't repent later, and we probably will experience the judgment of God. Rather, what should the kindness of God cause us to do? Romans 2.4 gives us the answer. Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Kindness of God should lead us to repentance. Think for yourselves how God has shown you undeserved kindness. Even now, amid the coronavirus, you're not receiving from God what you deserve to receive according to your sins. So what should you do? What should you do in response to that? 
Turn from your sins and follow God. Follow God while there's still time. Be a true follower of Christ. Give up yourself. Give up your old way. Take the good yoke of Christ's way upon you. Don't trust in your good works. Trust only in the perfect life, death, and resurrection to make you righteous and acceptable before God forever. I told you that the third step of Bible study, proper Bible study, is application. And really we've been looking at application as we've gone along in the lesson today. But let me just summarize some of the takeaways, some of the applications as we close our time today. How should you, how should we respond to the teaching of God in Judges 1 and 2? Again, I've mentioned most of these things already today. but just want to summarize them to you. Number one, we must repent of idolatry. If you know the Bible well at all, you know that you don't need a statue to be idolatrous. The great Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once defined idols in this way. And if you have the workbooks, you might have read this. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about idols. An idol is anything in my life that occupies a place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be vital, anything that is essential to me, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and my attention, my energy and my money. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. The book of Judges, as well as the Torah of Moses, they show us what God thinks of idols, whether they're carved in stone or cast in metal or just raised up in our hearts. God says he hates idolatry and he hates idolaters. He will judge all idol worshipers. Even as he loves and shows compassion to them, he hates idolatry. He's a jealous God. He will not give his deserved glory and honor to another. And those who serve idols, even idols of the heart, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 verses 5 and 6 says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, but they will inherit everlasting punishment. Yet idols can appear in our hearts so easily, even as believers. We can turn even good things, good desires, into idols, like The desire to have a loving spouse, a godly spouse. The desire to have a healthy family, even amid the coronavirus. Or a desire to have a successful church ministry. We can turn these things into idols. And we often do. We serve the idol. We seek the idol rather than the true God. If you're not sure whether there's an idol currently in your life, Well, know, first of all, that they pop up easily, so we want to guard against it. But there's some diagnostic questions that can help you. And one of them is, is there something in your life that makes you feel angry, anxious, depressed? Well, you need to recognize that we often feel anger, worry, and hopelessness because of an idol. We're valuing something else in our life more than God. And because that idol is threatened by someone or by life circumstances, We act out in sin, by anger, worry, hopelessness. Now God gives us many good things in this world to enjoy, and we should enjoy them as worship to God. But we must hold even good things with a very open hand before God, 
We must truly believe that glorifying God is better than obtaining any earthly treasure, any even good desire. Yes, it would be good for your family to be healthy now during the coronavirus. But you need to be ready for God not to will that. Maybe it would glorify him more, actually, for you to get sick. Now this is crazy, crazy, crazy thought, right? And yet, we know in the scriptures that often is the case. Something we think of as like, no, God, that would be so terrible. He says, actually, this is going to glorify me. This is what's going to allow you to be such a great testimony at this time. You say, well, would that really be the best thing? Think about what Paul said. He said, the one thing I truly am worried about in life is whether God will be glorified. But you know what? God has promised to glorify himself. So whether by my life or by my death, may God be glorified in my life. If you know Jesus Christ, that ought to be what your heart says. God, you give and take away according to your good will. Lord, do what you've ordained. Just glorify yourself and let me enjoy you in the process. We need to be able to say that because if we say, God, anything but this, we probably have an idol. We need to repent of it. Another quick test for idolatry of the heart is if there's something that you sin to get, or if you sin to do because you don't get it, it's an idol to you. If you sin to get it, or if you sin because you don't get it, it's an idol to you. Judges is saying to us very clearly that we need to repent of any idols in our lives. God will not endure idolatry in his people. We must repent of it. I'll go through these others quickly. Another principle we need to take away here is we need to beware little compromises, things that seem little, both personally, individually, and also corporately. Remember, change is not always possible or easy later. We need to guard ourselves from the little compromises now. We need to be diligent. We need to prioritize training our children in the Lord. Even now, during coronavirus, is an opportunity for you as parents particularly fathers, to do this. Make this a priority. Don't assume it'll just happen by itself or that the church will take care of it. No, it's on you. God calls you to do this. And then, be grateful for God's kindness. God has shown us and continues to show us such undeserved kindness in our lives. And the greatest kindness, of course, of all was that the Lord sent Jesus to save us. He died on the cross for the sins of those who believe in him, and he will bring them to himself into an everlasting kingdom. And why should we deserve that? We should be grateful to the Lord, and we should love the Lord because of that. Now that's all for this week. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard today, or about this scripture, or really about anything, please post it in the chat, and I'll be happy to interact with you about it. Or you can email me at dafkaposha at gmail.com. Now next week, what are we doing next week? Well, next week is our review week. And normally we, we often watch a video during the review weeks, but not really profitable or possible to do that in this format. So I have a plan to do something a little different. We will do a little bit of review next week, but then I would like to take advantage of some of what I've been studying in my seminary classes. And I want to do a lesson about the land of Israel itself. I mean, it's appropriate. We've just seen Israel enter the land and the conquest. So... What can we actually learn about the land? It's terrain, it's climate, it's major cities. I think when we get a little bit of understanding about the geography 
and land of Israel, it helps us in understanding what's really going on, or appreciate more what's going on in the different Bible passages we read. So I'm planning to do a little bit of that next week, and I think that will be profitable and enjoyable to you as we go through that together. Let's close the time of prayer, and then if you have anything you'd like to share afterwards in the chat, I'd love to interact with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great Father of light. But our our calling before you, God, in light of our great salvation, is to live in the light as well. Lord, we'll never be perfect, but we are to be growing in sanctification. And that's the way to joy and blessing. So help us to do that. Help us to take hold of your promises and let go of idols. They are deceptive. They are destructive. They bring your chastening hand, even your judgment. God, we cannot be nonchalant about sin or about idolatry. We need to be serious. We need to engage in spiritual warfare so that we would not have any impeded fellowship with you and so that we can display you to this world that needs you and needs to be saved. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that your word does by your spirit. Grow your people in holiness, but also in love for you and joy of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all again for joining us, joining me in this time of study, and I'll see you again soon. If you have anything you'd like to share in the chat, please do so. Welcome, Craig. Well, we'll be going through, uh, Liz, to answer your question, we'll be going through the book of Judges for a little while. We're basically moving our way through the Old Testament and New Testament chronologically, so we'll be in Judges for a little bit. Welcome, Magda. Vernon, you're welcome. Lynn and Rhea, you're welcome. Juan and the Lagrippos, you're welcome. Sherianna Khalif, you're most welcome. Yeah, Mark, I echo that exhortation. May God indeed shape our desires toward his beauty and his glory. The Lord himself is our inheritance. He is to be our chief joy. And so may we say the same thing as the psalmist does. Welcome, Roy. Thank you for being here. Leroy, uh, most welcome. Michael, thanks for joining us, and you're welcome. Aaron Trarens, you're welcome. Eric, thanks for joining Welcome, Dwayne and Judy. Thanks for being here. Brian and Michelle, you're welcome. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot from this passage. Uh, Rich, you're right. It's one that we do want to continue to meditate on because there's great, great sobriety, but also great joy when we consider the scriptures appropriately. Juan, you're welcome. Thanks for being here. Mazi, thank you for being here. Liz, thank you for being here, and you're welcome. Oh, the you're, I think you may be talking about the workbooks, Liz. Yeah, there's usually a workbook that goes with each each unit. Yeah, I'm not sure what we can do to possibly distribute the workbooks at this time. So we might just be using the Bible. I have to maybe check with the the rest of um, the leaders at Calvary about that. But I'm glad that you've been able to take advantage of the workbook. Kevin and Cherie, you're welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, so Vera and Ken, your question, what was the name of the archaeology group? That's the Association of Biblical Research. Actually, it might be Associates 
of biblical research, but they have a website. They have a lot of good articles there. The one, you know, I actually didn't write down the title, but if you look up Associates of Biblical Research and Abortion and Child Sacrifice, you'll find the article that I mentioned in class today. Very interesting, but also kind of a chilling article. And you just see a lot of the parallels between modern abortion and ancient child sacrifice. I'm glad to hear that, Roy. Yeah, I think we don't get to hear much about geography of the land of Israel. And uh, we see place names in the Bible like Aphek or Hill Country. And we're like, eh, don't really know what that's talking about. But that's been something I've been I've been benefiting in learning about in one of my seminary classes. So I trust it will be a benefit to you. Very interesting and very helpful in understanding the Bible. So, yeah, I'm glad you're looking forward to that. I am too. All right, if there are any other comments or questions, just hit me up in an email. I'm going to sign off for now. Thank you again for being here and joining joining me in the Sunday School class. Oh, uh, Richard mentions, in regard to the lesson book, they could be left in the church front porch for pickup. Okay, yeah, we'll consider that and uh, see what we can do to get, distribute the lesson books. But as I was saying, thank you for being here, and I look forward to meeting again with you next week. The Lord be with you.